parents, you don't have kids in the youth program, but younger kids, you'd like to see what will be in the future for you, you're more than welcome to attend as well. But you just can't have any cornbread. <laughs> Got to pay your dues. Got to pay your dues. Just kidding. Well, it's been over a week since the tragic shooting in Parkland, Florida. Very sad, incredibly sad experience for our nation. As we're all well aware, the tragedy set off a fierce debate about gun control in our country. That's not my place to discuss here. One thing, though, that we all can agree on is the remarkable actions of some of those who were there. Perhaps most notable was a gentleman named Aaron Feiss. He was an assistant football coach and security guard. As soon as shots were heard, he ran to help even though he was unarmed. Eyewitnesses said Feist died while shielding students from the gunman. So I don't care if you are a Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, that hits you, doesn't it? That's a universal language. When someone is willing to lay down their life for others. Nothing speaks more powerfully than that. Nothing is more stirring when someone is willing to pay the ultimate cost on a human level. John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus not only did this, or said this, but he did it, right? That is the heart of the Christian message, is that Jesus laid down his life for others. He paid the ultimate cost on a human level. And we all would just sit and marvel at what he did on that account. But the heart of the Christian message goes beyond just someone dying for other people, right? We know that there's a whole infinite world attached to what Jesus did that goes beyond just laying down his life for other people. It goes beyond anything we can fathom. But we're encouraged to try, aren't we? To understand, to grasp just even a portion of what Jesus has done for us. And we're richly blessed as we do. And you know, it hit me this week just thinking about this passage we'll be looking at is that Jesus' love for you is the strongest love that you will experience in this whole world. And there's a lot of powerful love, isn't there, in the world? You think about a love between a husband and a wife, or a parent and a child, or between friends, and all of those are wonderful, but nothing compares to the love that Jesus has for you. And I hope that reality will just wash over us and remind us again today and transform us as a result. So today we're going to look at the incredible sacrificial love of Jesus from an amazing text in the Gospel of John as Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So again, friends, we are in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John. Today we come to the third and fourth of the I Am statements. With this, Jesus says something about himself. He says, I am, and then fill in the blank. We've talked already about how Jesus is the bread of life, 
and He's the light of the world. And these different I Am statements talk about something significant in relationship to Jesus' being our Savior and our relationship with Him. They talk about the fullness, the greatness of our relationship with Christ. That's why the number seven, I think, was chosen. It's a number that symbolizes fullness and completeness. And so these I Am statements teach us rich but practical truths about our relationship to Jesus. And so today we're going to actually look at two statements that are in the same passage. I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. So please turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background. Context is key, right, with any passage of Scripture, and particularly so with this one. Our story isn't just kind of randomly thrown in there but it falls on the heels of what took place in John chapter 9. You guys remember that? We talked about it a while ago. That was the story where Jesus healed this man who had been born blind. And Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And as a result of this man being healed, the crowds were amazed. But then the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, came around and wanted to explore and to see, did this really take place? Even though the evidence was loud and clear, they didn't believe. And they even have the very memorable exchange with the blind man, trying to find some flaw in his story. And then eventually, they're so mad at him that they kick him out of the synagogue, which was a major form of ostracism because that was the center of community life. And so they kick him out of the synagogue because he had been healed by Jesus. Pretty tragic thing they were doing there. And so then Jesus comes along, and as the story closes in John 9, Jesus takes that metaphor of being physically blind and applies it to these religious leaders and says that they are spiritually blind. Kind of hard to lead people if you're blind, right? And they were spiritually blind. And so that background sets the stage for Jesus' teaching as he presents this very vivid contrast between himself and the religious leaders. So the first part of the passage is the story about a good shepherd. It's just kind of a generic story, a parable almost, if you will, as Jesus starts off by talking about the good shepherd. So read with me, if you will, verses 1 to 6, chapter 10. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, That man is a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So, shepherding, a little bit different for you and I, right, in our day and age, but shepherding was very common in this time and location. And let me just give you a little bit of the story here. So people would often have a courtyard right next to their house or maybe within close distance of their house, where they would have a stone wall in this courtyard, and they would keep their sheep inside 
the courtyard. And sometimes several families would put their sheep into the same kind of sheep pen together. And then sometimes if it was large enough, they would hire someone to be the gatekeeper to make sure the sheep just didn't wander off and so forth. All right. So that's a little bit of the kind of have it in your mind's eye. But what is Jesus talking about here? Now, the focus of the story, though, isn't on the sheep and it's not on the gatekeeper. It's on the shepherd. He's the centerpiece. As it said there in verse 2, when the shepherd arrives, that's when everything begins, right? He goes and he enters by the door. The gatekeeper knows him, right? So he opens the door. He didn't just open the door for anybody. He opens it for the shepherd. The sheep then hear the shepherd's voice. And we're going to see that's important, that they recognize the shepherd's voice. And he calls them by name. He just calls them out. And you know, they actually did that. Still do nowadays, even in that time and place, they still do it today. They would actually name the sheep and call them out. The sheep would follow the shepherd out. And then the shepherd would walk ahead of them and the sheep would follow behind the shepherd. So you got that in your mind? That's a cool image, isn't it? The shepherd shows up, starts calling the sheep out, gets them all out, doesn't leave any behind, gets them all out of the sheep pen, and then he leads them out to pasture, him walking ahead of the other sheep. Likewise, if a stranger, though, comes up and tries to lead them out, it's just not going to work. In fact, the sheep will flee, as Jesus said, from the shepherd, I mean, from the false shepherd. In fact, did you know that if a sheep really wants to make a fast getaway, he will drive off in a Lamborghini? Man, I got a thumbs down for that. <laughs> but he has to be careful. You know why? Because he doesn't want to make an illegal U-turn. All right, no more bad jokes. Sorry, visitors, apologize for that. <laughs> They're usually not that bad, but couldn't resist. So anyway, the sheep will follow, will not follow the stranger's voice. And it was interesting, this past week I watched a short video about this sheep out in pasture, and, and there was probably, I don't know, 30 or so sheep, and they had three strangers go up to the fence there and start calling out for the sheep. One after another, they tried. And it was amazing. They would call out, and the sheep just kept on grazing. They didn't even budge. They just sat there and kept eating. And then the shepherd shows up, and he starts calling them. One by one, the heads start popping up. And before not very long at all, all the sheep come running to the shepherd. And amazing, they recognize the voice of the shepherd. But in contrast, verse 1, like you saw there, the person who does not enter through the door, this person's a thief and a robber. 
Did you know that stealing sheep was a big deal, major concern? People would try to steal those sheep for the meat and for the wool. And if someone was a thief, they didn't come through the front door because the gatekeeper would be there. And so what they would do is they would climb over the wall in the middle of the night when no one was around. So you could tell how the sheep left by who, or who it was, how they left, right? They went in through the door. It was the shepherd. They were getting dragged over the wall. They were a thief or a robber. Now, as verse 6 notes, the audience did not understand the figure of speech that he spoke to them. And I'm sure, again, this is coming off of chapter 9. So this was probably a big crowd there. The religious leaders are there. But they don't get it. All right? So are are you guys getting it so far? Do you understand the story? All right. Because then Jesus now, he's going to take that generic story and then he's going to apply it to himself. First, he's going to call himself the door, and then he's going to call himself the good shepherd. All right, so let's read verses 7 to 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So twice, Jesus clearly states, I am the door of the sheep. So again, that's one of his I am statements. I am the door. So what does he mean by that? What I think he means is that he is the only entrance for the sheep. If anyone enters by him, as it said there in verse 9, He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the idea of a door communicates exclusivity, doesn't it, right? If you want to get from point A to point B, you have to go through that door. You must go this way. There is no other entry point of salvation Jesus is getting at. So He is the door. Now, this is the only time in Scripture he explicitly says, I am the door. But that idea of him being the way to salvation is elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, in Matthew 7, 13-14, Jesus says these words, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So, the door speaks about Jesus being the way to salvation. I'm not going to go on any more about it because we're going to talk about the I am statement in the future where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I'll develop that more when we come to that passage in a few weeks. Plus, as we're going to see, Jesus spends a lot more time talking about him being the good shepherd. So we'll give it more attention as well. So what about these thieves and robbers? Who in the world are they? Who are the thieves and the robbers? Jesus teaches that all who came before Him were thieves and robbers. Well, again, if we're trying to read the Bible on its own terms and to read the context, He is talking about these religious leaders. They were the thieves and the robbers. say, man, that's hard. Why does Jesus say that? Well, Think about the things they were doing, these people. We just read about in John 9 how this man who had been healed 
was cast out of the synagogue because he believed that Jesus had healed him. Jesus, in other places, strongly condemns the religious leaders. I mean, Jesus has the most conflict with the religious leaders as he does with anybody else in the Gospels. And he says, he accuses them of unbelief, of greed, and hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, 15, Jesus calls them, excuse me, children of hell who make children of hell because they were leading people away from the door, right? The way to salvation. They were saying, this guy is demon-possessed. This guy you should never listen to. And their lives were leading people away. And their words were leading people away. They wanted to kill Jesus. Several times we've read how they wanted to kill Him. And of course they eventually will. And they will persecute the church. So the thieves and the robbers were these religious leaders as they're trying to lead the sheep away. But thankfully the true sheep don't listen to them. Despite the religious leaders with all of their status and all of their wealth and all of their religious garb who would attract a following and their pressure. They said, you know, if you believe in Jesus, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. That's what they were saying in John 9. There was a lot of pressure not to believe in Jesus. But the true sheep actually do listen to Jesus. Because in contrast to the thieves and the robbers, Jesus comes to bring life. Now, what kind of life is he talking about here? Just physical life or eternal life? He means eternal life. You say, well, what is that? Well, in John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, Jesus comes that you might have eternal life. That you might know God. Not just that you know God exists, but that you know God personally. You have a present possession of a relationship with God. And when you die, you will spend the rest of eternity with God. That is eternal life. Now, I do need to make a comment here about the fact that Jesus says, excuse me, abundant life. Abundant life. Because you hear that a lot in Christian circles. Does Jesus mean more than eternal life? Is there somehow, okay, you receive eternal life, but is there something more than that that a Christian should have? An abundant life. Because there's a lot of preachers and teachers that talk about the abundant Christian life almost in an addition to what Jesus is talking about here, the eternal life. Now, considering that eternal life is my, what Jesus is saying here is the greatest life, I don't think he's getting that. But again, many teachers will go around saying that Jesus wants you to have the abundant life, meaning that you will have an abundance in your bank account, you will have mansions, you will have uh, luxury trips around the world, and you'll never get sick. It's kind of like I was thinking about a game show, you know, where, say, three people make the, the, the game show, and everybody gets the same prize, you know, for being on the game show. You win $5,000 or whatever, but only one person goes on to the bonus round. 
Because in the bonus round, that's when you get the dream vacation or the luxury car. And so it sounds great that everybody gets the same prize, but deep down, don't we really want the bonus round? I mean, to get that kind of amazing vacation or whatever? And I think that's the danger of the abundant life teaching. That it makes it sound like that the eternal life Jesus offers is somehow kind of pales, pales in comparison to the abundant life that you could have. Stop and think about who Jesus is talking to here and the audience around him. Those around him were his early disciples, right? Did they experience the abundant life in terms of that, the prosperity gospel, so to speak? Do you know that all of them experienced intense persecution? All of them except John died as a martyr. So do you think Jesus was really talking about prosperity gospel when he mentioned you could have life and have it abundantly? Friends, get this in your mind. Eternal life is abundant life. Abundant life is eternal life. If you're not experiencing abundant life, the answer is not a new car or a dream vacation. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but that's not the abundant life. The abundant life is tapping into the eternal life that Jesus gives to all of His people. He wants you to tap in to fellowship with God, victory over sin, growing in the fruit of the Spirit, and so forth. That is what He wants you to understand when He says the abundant life. Everybody with me? All right. I want to make sure that's clear. Because you will turn on TV and hear a whole lot that goes against that. You've got to read the Bible on its own terms, right? All right. So next, Jesus makes that second I am statement of the passage. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Verses 11 to 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So again, let me just say a few things about shepherding because it's different from our day and age but also because it's such an important theme in the Bible. Did you know that? Many of the important characters in the Bible were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they were all shepherds at some point in their lives. And the Lord is called the shepherd. He was a shepherd to the nation of Israel. He guided them. He led them. He protected them. He nurtured them. Psalm 80 verse 1 says, refers to God as the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 82 verse 52 describes how the Lord led the people of Israel out of Egypt like a, like a shepherd leads the sheep. And he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness and to the promised land. He takes that same image of a shepherd and the sheep. He applies it to the exiles. Remember when they were carried off to exile to Babylon? Well, when they come back, again, it's like shepherd leading his sheep. Isaiah 40, verse 11, if you want to look that up. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. 
So the Lord was the shepherd of the nation of Israel. But it's not just the nation itself, but also of the individual. He shepherded individuals. Genesis 48.15, Jacob says that God was his shepherd in his life. And then, of course, most famously, Psalm 23, verse 1 says what? The Lord is my shepherd. Also worth noting here, just to kind of fill out the picture about the Old Testament and the idea of shepherding, was that God called his rulers shepherds. And the greatest king that Israel ever had was David because he united the, the people once. That was the, really the only time they were ever united. In 2 Samuel 5.2, the Lord told David, You shall be my shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over them. And God promised a royal line to come from David. And listen to this, friends. From the line of David is going to come the Messiah who would be the ultimate shepherd of God's people. So after all the shepherds and the rulers and the kings, they kind of had their ups and downs, didn't they, over Israel's history. So God said, one day there's going to come a true shepherd. Ezekiel 37.24, the Lord spoke of a future king from the line of David. He says, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Micah 5.4 adds this prediction about the Messiah. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Isn't that pretty cool? There's going to come a great shepherd one day, the Lord is saying. But interestingly also, Scripture describes how bad shepherds harmed God's people. Jeremiah 23, 1 and 2 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. So Jesus is applying that imagery of these bad shepherds. He's saying to these religious leaders, these are, those images are applied to you. So do you see that? The Old Testament was just filled with all of this shepherd imagery about God and about the ruler one day who would come as Messiah. Because if you don't see that, you don't get the power of Jesus' words. Otherwise, it's just, oh, that's a nice analogy. A shepherd and sheep, that's nice and cozy, and that looks great on a magnet on a refrigerator. And it is that. But if that's all we get, man, we're missing the, the, the really awesome stuff. Because all of that imagery pointed to the fact that the shepherd ultimately is God. The shepherd is ultimately the Messiah who's going to come for His people. Amen? So getting back to the passage, Jesus says, He is that good shepherd. This is where it's overwhelming because we've got to stop and ask ourselves, why does He say He is the good shepherd? Not just a shepherd or the shepherd, but the good shepherd. Well, five times in this passage, Jesus stresses the fact that He lays down his life for the sheep. He stands in total contrast to the hired help, right? When the hired help sees that wolf coming, what does he do? He, takes, he runs for the hills, doesn't he? He's not messing with that wolf. Why? Because he doesn't really care for the sheep. They're just a paycheck to him. They don't really care. 
Those hired hands, they don't love them. They don't know them. But in contrast, the good shepherd, he owns the sheep. He loves the sheep. He cares for them. He knows them. And he will even lay down his life for them. In verse 16, Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You guys still hanging in there? So who are the other sheep? You might want to pay attention to this part because you're part of it. When Jesus came along in his ministry, he said that he focused on the people of Israel. During his ministry, he said in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so far in his fold, you look at the 12 disciples and other people along the way, like the blind man who was now a believer. These were all Jewish people. Now, there were some exceptions, like in John 4, we saw the Samaritan village that believed in Jesus. But by and large, the fold was primarily Jewish followers of Jesus. So Jesus is saying one day there's going to be a new fold that's brought in. He's talking about the Gentiles. Aren't you glad you're part of that? They were at this time outside of the covenant people of God, but they're about to be brought in. And so when Jesus rises from the dead and He ascends and He gathers His disciples, He doesn't say, okay guys, go back through the nation of Israel one more time. He says, no, go to the ends of the earth. Because I'm going to gather in a flock from all nations to be my followers. And even though there's going to be Jew and Gentile followers, there's still only going to be one flock, one shepherd to lead them all. That's pretty powerful. And then in verse 17, Jesus discusses how the Father loves him because he lays down his life. And then again, he, he, notice how he says there that he takes up, he will take up his life again. Here's a big hint. Spoiler alert, if you will, right? That Jesus is going to die one day, but He's going to rise again. That's not going to be the end of the story. He's dropping a hint right in front of everybody. I'm going to rise again. Isn't that crazy? He not only is going to die, but He's going to raise Himself from the dead. And then the final verse says, No one takes it from me, speaking of His life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Man, this is a mind-bender here. On one hand, Jesus is saying, look, I, no one can take my life from me. And we've seen already several times how the Jewish religious leaders have tried to stone Him, tried to kill Him. Doesn't matter. You can't take His life from Him, Right? Even the night before the cross, when he knows he's about to die, he said, look, I could stop this at any point if I wanted to and call down 12 legions of angels. So no one takes his life from him. No one. He lays it down. But then on the other hand, Jesus received this charge from his Father to lay down his will, so, to his life. So he willingly lays down his life, but he received this command from the Father. Again, we see that tension, don't you? God's sovereignty over all things, but yet our responsibility. And Jesus was faithful to lay down his life to accomplish salvation. So let me close with a couple points of application. So as we read this passage... 
What is the primary characteristic about the good shepherd that makes him so good? It's the fact that he is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And I want you to understand that he did this not just to set an example about sacrifice and about thinking of others. Yes, that is part of it. But Jesus ultimately did this. He laid down his life to die for our sins. Our sins must be atoned for. Our sins require punishment. Our sins incur God's wrath. And even the best of people, no matter what they do in life, are riddled with sin in their thoughts and in their words and in their actions. Do you realize that as you sitting here today, every single person stands guilty of sin in your life and thus requires a punishment from God if He is truly just. He's not sweeping it under the rug. So someone must take our place and suffer for our sins. Not just physically, but spiritual. The spiritual punishment that we deserve. Jesus laid down His life for you. For you. Not just the world in specific, but for you. Remember I said there is no stronger love in the entire universe than Jesus' love for you. 1 Peter 2.24-25 declares, He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we, speaking of the cross, sometimes it's called a tree, that He may die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, the cross was for you. It was for me. And the question is, have you ever embraced the good shepherd as your shepherd. Because you need it. You must do it. You can't save yourself. He didn't go through all this. He didn't sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, if there was a plan B. He did that because this was the way that the justice of God would be satisfied and yet the love of God would be displayed that anyone who believes in Him and anyone who turns from their sins can find eternal life. In Jesus Christ. And let me just give you a word of hope and encouragement. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that sounds great, but you don't know what I've done or what I'm struggling with right now. God does. And that door, Jesus is the door, is wide open for anyone who wants to go through the door. There is no sin that bars you from the door. He is there with His arms wide open, ready to receive anyone who will turn from their sins and believe that He is the door, that He is the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for you. Isn't that good news? Today, you can have eternal life if you will only believe that Jesus is the Good Shepherd of your life. One more thing here. Talked about how Jesus lays down his life, and I think that's the main focus. But one other thing that I hope you guys caught was how he knows his sheep, doesn't he? 
They recognize His voice. They listen to His voice. They have a relationship with us. With Isn't that amazing? That the God of this universe has a relationship with you? For those who have trusted Christ, that you hear His voice? He said earlier that the way He knows His sheep is the way that He knows the Father. That's profound, isn't it? And it's true, once you come to know God, it's amazing how you just start knowing Him. And He starts guiding your life. And let me encourage the sheep here today who have heard His voice, who have been called out by name. Are you listening to that voice? Is there anything obstructing that voice? Because let me be honest with you. You need to hear that voice. Because it is no accident that we are compared to sheep. Sheep are notoriously dumb. And they are notoriously defenseless. I mean, sheep are dumb. They'll follow each other off a cliff, won't they? When a wolf comes up, instead of running and scattering so some might survive, you know what they do? They all come together. So there's nowhere to run. They have no way to defend themselves. They have no power. A wolf comes, he can kill at will. And this is a powerful image, I think, for the believer. That when it comes to the roaring lion out there, Satan, and the forces of darkness, if you're trying to wander off like sheep like to do and think you can do it yourself, or just somehow neglect God, you're going to get devoured, won't you? We need to listen to his voice. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, I think very simply, we need to fill our minds with the word of God, don't we? Jesus isn't speaking audibly like he was to his disciples, but we have his words recorded in scripture, don't we? So that daily we can take in the word of God so that we fill our minds with truth and to fill our minds with, this is what God thinks about that. This is the promise that I'm clinging to. I'm going through this heartache and this trial right now and I'm not going to go by my feelings. I'm going to go by what God says. Right? You won't come up with that on your own. Other voices will lead you astray or you'll wander. So we need to have His word hidden in our hearts. And then we need to pray without ceasing, right? It's not just that we read the Word of God and then we check it off and then we go about our day. we got a long day ahead of us, don't we? And we know Satan would love to trip us up and lead us astray. So we're to pray without ceasing. To pray throughout the day. Lord, what am I to do in this situation? This is a terrible temptation. Or I don't know what to do with this decision. Oh, I'm really frustrated with this person right now. Instead of just trying to grind it out on our own, we should pray, shouldn't we? Maybe go peel off for a few minutes. Maybe under, the, under our breath say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your help. And to listen to his voice. Amen? And we can be assured that he will. Because, friends, we have a good shepherd. He loves you. He loves his sheep. And he wants us to follow. Let me close by reading a wonderful benediction. It's found in the book of Hebrews. You guys should read this sometimes. It's just a tremendous word of praise and a great way to close our message here. Hebrews 13, 20-21. Actually, just close your eyes and let these words just kind of wash over you 
about our great shepherd. Hebrews 13.20-21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible passage. Lord Jesus, it's amazing how you take something that it was just so common and pedestrian like sheep and shepherds. And you take that image and you fill it with so much power and truth. And Lord, I pray that these words would sink into our hearts, deeply into our hearts today. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who's never understood your love for them, that God, they would understand and that you might call them out, call them by name, and that they would follow you. They would lay aside anything that might hinder guilt and shame and Lord, realize that they are coming to you confessing their sins and believing that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who can make them new. And Lord, I pray for us, your sheep, the ones you have called out of darkness and to follow you. Lord, we pray that we would listen attentively to your voice. We know that we hear you, God, through your word. We pray that we would take it hide it into our hearts on a regular, if not daily basis, so that we're reminded of who, you're, who you are, who we are, your promises and your character. And Lord, that we would pray throughout the day. Lord, we would listen for your voice. We would ask for your help. And we would not stray very far from the shepherd. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.